This is The Guardian. Today, it's the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II and the end of an era. At quarter to 11 this morning, Queen Elizabeth will make her final journey to Westminster Abbey. This medieval church symbolized so much to her. It's the place where in 1947, she married Prince Philip and where six years later, she was crowned. As this day draws to its close, I know that my abiding memory of it will be not only the solemnity and beauty of the ceremony, but the inspiration of your loyalty and affection. In 2002, it was where she paid her last respects to her mother. And now, 20 years on, it's where the nation will say goodbye to her. God bless you all. Over the last few days, hundreds of thousands of people have queued for hours to see her lying in state in Edinburgh and in London. So we travelled down from Yorkshire to join the queue. We joined the queue at 6.07 and it is now 20 to 4 in the morning. See, the Queen's done a lot for us and I think, uh, you know, the least we can do is spend five or six hours in the queue. Across the world, billions of people are expected to watch today's service on TV. As a country and the world say goodbye. Thank you so much. This is a huge moment in British history. This will be the first state funeral in Britain since Winston Churchill's in 1965. The Churchill family have passed by Her Majesty. On this occasion only, it is not considered necessary that they have to acknowledge her presence and have taken their places at one side of this majestic scene. And for the Metropolitan Police, the most complex security operation that's ever happened in London. If you think about uh, the London Marathon, uh, the Carnival, uh, previous royal weddings, uh, the Olympics, it's all that uh, in one. How do you coordinate an event like this? Down to the last buckle, feather and trumpet. And what does it all signify? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, a funeral for a queen. How Britain marks the passing of its monarch. Sam Knight, five years ago, you wrote this piece for The Guardian called London Bridge is Down, which was based on dozens of off-the-record conversations you'd had about the plans for when the Queen died. Now, at that time, you know, you were describing in detail an eventuality that was almost taboo to mention and existed as a code name only. It was called Operation London Bridge. Has everything played out exactly to plan? And, and what's it been like for you watching that happen? They adjusted the plans during the pandemic. And now as it's unfolding, it's kind of one of the things that 
strikes me is that they've gone for a pretty maximum version of things. There was a kind of obviously an opportunity to have the funeral on the weekend and instead they've gone for a bank holiday. But I have to say there is a kind of very peculiar satisfaction to seeing some of the, the tiny details. Like I had a little inward cheer when I saw that they had removed the window over Friars Court at St. James's Palace for the proclamation. And you'll see that they've taken the window out of the central part of that balcony. And I was like, yes, they took the window out of the socket. How long have the arrangements been in place then for this funeral? The huge majority of it is actually historical. You know, one of the most important sources for the article was just going back to the the files describing the death and funeral of, of George VI in 1952. Attired in their heavy mourning, the Queen, the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret enter their carriage and there begins the sad last journey of King George VI. They're sitting there in the National Archives and one of the top pieces of paper in the file is something that says to the effect of, look, we have a very young Queen, she's likely to live for a very long time, we need to make a really good record of what we did because the next time anyone has to put these arrangements into effect we're all going to be gone so one thing that really struck me during the reporting and i think has been borne out by what's happening now is this is arguably the central activity of the royal family and royal power which is succession handing power from one monarch to another so the plans for the the death of the Queen, this is something that people were thinking about in 1952. It's a very different way of conceiving of your life then, isn't it? You know, she came to the throne when she was 25 and there aren't many 25-year-olds who would know from that point onwards there is a plan in place for their funeral. Yeah, and this is where, you know, who would be, <laughs> who would be a monarch? I mean, your sense of self and personhood is really particular and divided between your country and the office that you hold and you as a thinking, breathing, feeling person. You write about all sorts of topics. What was it about the minutiae of this particular arrangement that so interested you? I think because, like most British people if you care to, you can sort of measure out your life in these occasions when you kind of gathered around the TV to watch the next episode, right? And one of the things that that struck me while I was doing the reporting was that I was seeing the almost hysterical level of detail to which these things are planned. You know, you muffle Big Ben with a strip of leather three quarters of an inch thick. I've probably got that wrong. It's probably like two sixteenths <laughs> two, two of an inch thick. And, and, you, and you see this insane level of detail in the plans. And while I was reading it, I was going, oh, yeah, this is what you hear in the TV commentary. You know, there's that kind of soothing BBC tones of, you know, here come the drummers from the cool stream. Oh, talking about with, you know, the flowers. The high constables of Holyrood and their bailey, John Scotland Creeve, are in their places under the colonnade always here when the sovereign is in residence. And there's this kind of intonation 
of detail and symbols and bells and uniforms. And like none of us know what any of it is, but even that act and that kind of poetical incantation of these things and, and presentation of these images, we feel it deeply and it is simultaneously consoling, it is awe-inspiring, it's a very powerful theatrical event. And so it struck me that it is this amassing of detail and procedure which creates this very powerful psychological effect which most of us, to some extent, experience and take part in. And there have been several plans in place in case of different eventualities depending upon where the Queen passed away. In your piece, you said that the most elaborate plans were for what would happen if she passed away at Balmoral. Could you talk to me about the symbolism of what we've seen over the past 10 days then, as her body has been transported from Balmoral to Westminster? You know, the way I've thought about the processions and the rituals that have followed the departure of her coffin from Balmoral, in a way, it's been for me anyway, like watching the journey from the person and the individual to this national and ultimately international figure. You see the coffin moving through the different states of her being. Thousands and thousands of people have come to pay their respects from across the UK and from across the world, queuing for hours to see the Queen lying in state, even though they can't attend the funeral itself. Why do you think people have felt the need to be there in person? I think there's something very visceral about wanting to be together and to be, you know, part of something larger than ourselves. I've grown up with her for 80 years, so it means a lot to me. Yeah, it's quite a big deal and I, she's probably, she's the closest person that's ever died to me. It's a historic moment, isn't it? Yeah. I think it will maybe be something that we, our kids ask us about eventually, about the Queen. These needs within us are, are deep. So I think it's possible to like go along to Buckingham Palace or join the epic queue for the lying in state and kind of not feel anything particularly sentimental towards her or the royal family, but to still have have a strong sense of being part of a of a shared kind of social destiny. And I wonder as well if there's a double vision that people have as they're joining those queues, that they, they're experiencing it in the moment, but they're also doing it for their future selves so that they can look back and say, I was there. I think that's completely right. You know, my, my dad was born in 1945 and, and he queued up to file past the coffin of Winston Churchill in 1965. And it's something he, he still talks about, that he hitchhiked his way from Bristol to queued up through the night to, to take part in. The coffin in its place, at the head above it, towards the altar, the insignia, the spurs, the sword, the targe, or the shield, and the crest of Sir, of Sir Winston Churchill as a Knight of the Garter, that brought from the Garter Chapel of Windsor, stand arrayed before the coffin. And it's, it's exactly that. It's a combination of a personal and a political memory. And then at the same time, there have, of course, been plenty of people who felt that there's been too much ceremony and who don't agree with the idea of a monarchy at all. 
over the past 10 days, we've seen some fairly heavy handed policing and people have been arrested just for shouting protest. What have you felt about that? Seeing really mild mannered, sane political protest being handled in that way. It's really sort of galling. It's kind of infuriating. You know, you think about how long these events have been planned for. It shouldn't get to everybody's heads. Do you know what I mean? You know, people have a right to to protest and to object to our constitution and the way that society is organised. It's kind of, it's part of our society, being able to do that. I feel like if there are any protests today, they're likely to be smaller scale and individuals who who feel it's important to to take a stand at these moments and you know and they're not they're not wrong to it's got to be fair and i think objectively true to say that what we're witnessing is an exercise in power and power being passed from one generation to another and an affirmation of our strange unwritten constitution and the way that the charismatic power of the monarchy operates next to the political power of westminster that's not treasonous to to observe that and it's not and it's not treasonous to to observe that our political system is is often not fair and not representative of of all the people who live here and to pretend that this is in some way just about mourning an an individual a kind of beloved granny figure and everyone putting on their best clothes and just sort of being decent to each other for a little while it's really naive and it kind of misses the point that this is a monarchy that has survived a thousand years through preserving its powers and its wealth as, as best as it can. Sam, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II is also going to be a massive broadcasting event. Actually, the filming of royal funerals goes all the way back to Queen Victoria. How have royal state funerals been covered in in moving image since that time, since 1901. If you think that when Victoria became queen in the 1830s, British royal spectacles were attended by the aristocracy and crowds would gather, they might get recorded in diaries or official engravings or things like that. And then by the time that she died in 1901, you've got the rise of a mass media. It's a completely different society. And it's not a coincidence in my mind that most of our royal rituals were sort of more or less invented in the 1890s to take account for that, to take account for what would happen when she died and the succession and the empire. And I would argue that Elizabeth II's reign spans a similar enormous change from one kind of society to another. When I think about the the moving images of royal events, particularly broadcasting, so from the sort of the 20s and 30s onwards through to the coronation of the Queen in 1953, so much of the imagery is, is martial. It has its origins in the armed forces. And you think about people who were watching or, or turning out for the for the funeral of George VI in 1952. Almost every family in the country will have had people who served during the Second World War. And this was a moment of obvious 
change and rejuvenation for the country after the horror of that period. And, you know, Richard Dimbleby, who commentated on the funeral, had been given very important descriptions of the liberation of Bergen-Belsen during the Second World War. It was a voice, it was a reporting style that would have struck all kinds of subconscious reverberations among people about the country's travails and sacrifice during that period, and now the breaking of a new dawn. Royalty is no longer remote. Films and radio now bring kings and queens into our daily lives. We see and recognize their qualities. The public has never been in doubt about the qualities, courageous and faithful, of him who rides here on his last journey. And when you think about it in those terms, it's striking to me that a lot of the imagery and the voices and the observations and the poetry and, and music that we'll witness today, those roots seem to me somewhat threadbare. Like there isn't that kind of obvious shared cultural hinterland that the population will will be watching this from. And I'm interested, you write for a US audience primarily, you write for The New Yorker. How have the past 10 days and how do you think the funeral will be received by people in the US? What will this mean to them? We'll all be watching for our different reasons, but I think there's there's no question that people overseas, and particularly in the US, will be watching the funeral because it will be a kind of moment of, you know, peak Britishness, won't <laughs> it? Do you know what I mean? This is like... A queen remembered. This is the UK satisfying everybody's idea of what the UK is supposed to be. A life celebrated. It's supposed to be really old. It's supposed to be somewhat hierarchical. It's supposed to be organised, calm, dignified, elevating in some way. We're good at words and music. People will be consoled by their idea of what Britain is or, or, or still is, because particularly in the US, which is going through even greater social and political trauma than, than we are. And so this will be a reminder that the show still looks like the show always has. All of these feelings of comfort and security that many people in this country derive from these occasions. Some very few people have been invited to attend the funeral. Who are we going to see in the congregation? So I think as the kind of, as the camera pans back, it will obviously be, you know, the royal family front and centre and those generations. And then we will see Britain's recent political history laid out with all our living prime ministers. Um, and then it will fan out to to the world and we'll see President Biden and we'll see Emmanuel Macron, we'll see... Ursula van der Leyen from the European Union, and we'll see some of the heads of the world's remaining royal families. And then it will be lists that have been lying around for years will have been sort of activated. There'll be a very, very strong Commonwealth contingent and sense of Britain's former empire. And then there's the small but exclusive NFI list of, you know, Belarus and Myanmar and, and Vladimir Putin who have not been invited to attend. No, they didn't get the invites for this one. What we will see come through very clearly is religion. The Queen was a devout Christian and she talked 
many times about how her faith guided her in the way that she conducted her own life and in the way that she led the country. In what ways are we going to see that religious symbolism in today's service? What, what kinds of readings and music are we going to be hearing? We'll hear from Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, giving the sermon, and David Hoyle will be officiating. And I think Welby as, a, as an archbishop has quite a clear way of moving between the political and the personal, and, and, and so I expect... I expect he'll do that really well. The actual funeral stuff, I think, is really personal. They designed these themselves. The Queen Mother designed her funeral service. Mountbatten designed his funeral service. The Queen will have designed her funeral service. And so there will be these these glimmers of her personality and, and her choices, in a way, in her funeral way, may learn more about her, her person and the things that moved her than we ever did when she was alive. You know, I think of the flowers that accompanied the coffin out of Balmoral. I picked them um, the day that she died, ready um, to, to make the wreath for her. The dahlias and the sweet peas and the things taken from parts of the estate that were particularly kind of close to her heart. And looking across at the royal family itself during the service, what will be the order of things? How are we going to see that hereditary power demonstrated in the way that the royal family itself is seated and the way that they conduct themselves during the service? That's a really interesting question. And I actually think this is something that has probably undergone some quite recent changes and thinking. It was clearly part of this final two years of the Queen's life was the shaping of of the succession and the real core of the royal family. You could see the squaring away of Camilla as queen consort, and there is a real clear sense of of who will be front and centre and the beginning of that laying of imagery which points to Charles and to William and to George. Even if it's pretty delicate and pretty subtle, the eye and the ritual will be will be guided that way. There's the main funeral service at Westminster Abbey and then there's a private service for the family only. Could you explain how those two parts are are going to work and the the timings of things? We talked about how her journey from Balmoral into the political and the final chapter of the day, which will be the cortege going from Westminster Abbey out of London to the West, to Windsor, as being the closing of the circle in the way and the retreat from the public eye and the historic places of power in this country back to the private realm again. And that's where this divided self, this divided family of the public and the private reverts back to the the private again, but with an important difference that in St George's in Windsor, where she will be interred, this is the place of our monarch. Charles sort of becomes king three times over in the course of these 10 days, the moment when his mother dies, then when he's proclaimed, and then when he takes this handful of reddish brownish soil and places it on her coffin. That will feel momentous and potentially more momentous for being relatively private. I guess anybody can can relate to to a certain extent that we have these rituals, we have funeral rituals as a way to help us grieve, but they can also 
at the same time feel like sort of performance and it will be for Prince Charles and for the rest of the family a very much a again like a double vision on himself as I've been saying you have rituals to affirm things but you also have rituals just to hold you together right because part of us is in shock and when you're in shock you need boundaries and you need parameters and you need roles to play and people to tell you where to stand and what to say. It is beautiful how this sequence of ceremonies is conducted and it's intended to be beautiful. There are moments when the curtain is drawn and we're left in the realm of imagination and that's that's all part of this and it's partly planned and it's partly instinct and it's partly real and it's partly theatre. Coming up, how much will it cost the country to host a service on this scale? Sam, this is such an extraordinary event. How much is it going to cost? And who exactly is paying for it? I think the bill will shake out over time. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see a magnanimous gesture from Charles and the royal family to make sure that the costs of this are covered. But in terms of the policing and the transport and the infrastructure, this will cost hundreds of millions. This is a national moment of of shared experience and coming together. Like it or not, this is very close to to who we are and how we function as a society. So you know, some of this stuff is like, sorry to be annoying, but it's kind of literally priceless. Beyond the event itself, though, there's going to be a cost to the economy, isn't there? Because it's been declared a bank holiday, which means that lots of businesses are shutting. A lot of funerals and hospital appointments have been cancelled as well. Can you just reflect for me on the kind of potential cost to the economy and the day-to-day running of things today? This is where, to my mind anyway, there has been a slight deviation from the script. Certainly, if you look back to to 1952, there was a sense anyway in the newspaper coverage, which is what I looked at very closely, more of a sense of things continuing. It wasn't business as usual, but it was supposed to be business as usual. Shops closed on the day and on the funeral. But to my reading anyway, more events continued as normal in the gaps in between. And I think there has been a kind of floundering around at the moment as as different kind of businesses guess what to do. So I have no doubt when the ONS releases its GDP figures later in the year, you'll see a bump in the road for this. And some people will feel like that was Mm. important and healing and, and worth the economic cost. And other people will remember the disruption. And we're going through a cost of living crisis. A lot of people are looking ahead to a winter where they're going to be really struggling to pay their energy bills or to buy food. Couldn't this event have been scaled back to reflect that and to have been kept in the tone of what a lot of people in this country are going through? We talked right at the beginning about, is this reflecting the plans such that I was able to find out about them beforehand. And I think that on some level, the palace and the government have gone for 
the maximum version. Once you're on the plan, it's kind of hard to get off. And this wasn't the plan that was drawn up in the aftermath of the invasion of Ukraine and the spiraling of, of inflation and really, really difficult economic consequences that people are dealing with at the moment. It's a plan which doesn't have particular sensitivity to that. And lots of people might think this is a government that doesn't have particular sensitivity to that either. And yet, on the other hand, this is a once a century event and likely to be the last ritual of royal power and royal succession on this scale ever. Do you uh, think so? Yeah, I think we're just in a different world now and Charles is the symbol and the repository for those feelings. And at first glance, that can feel kind of jarring and unconvincing. But I think these things turn out to be unpredictable. One obvious thing is that he is a much more emotional person who is, for all of his faults or opinions or proclivities over the years, has experienced grief and trauma and divorce and, and lots of things that people live with in their lives. The Queen is, is connected to a different kind of society and a different kind of imagination of what Great Britain is or was. And it's just irrevocably changed during her reign. The world and, and the events that, that her passing kind of call to mind will end today with her funeral. And then we're into a different chapter. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Sam Knight. If you haven't read his article, London Bridge is Down, then I really recommend you go to theguardian.com to find it. The level of research and detail he goes into is incredible. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams and Natalie Katena and sound designed by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Hummer Khalili and Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.